0: One of the things I enjoy about parenting is teaching my kids or showing my kids things that I enjoyed when I was younger. So we had the opportunity a couple weeks ago to, I was gonna show a movie to my kids. Now, when kids are little, it's not as much fun. I'm just going to be honest with you. Those of you who have like, little, little kids, like the moment they like go to the potty for the first time, you're not sitting there going like, I remember when I went to the potty the first time by myself. It's so fun. It's, like, it's not that much fun for you when they eat by themselves. I mean, you're going to celebrate it, but it's just not that much fun for you. But what is fun is when your kids can do things that you actually, as an adult, appreciate and enjoy, and you're like, oh, I want to introduce you. You need to see Star Wars. You need to whatever. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I took my, my two oldest sons, like my boys are ninth, 7th, and 5th grade, and we Watched, and don't judge me as a parent for this. We watched um, The Sixth Sense. Have you all seen The Sixth Sense? Awesome, right? And I'm like watching this movie. And I'm like, oh, man, The Sixth Sense. And and I hadn't seen it in almost 20 years or whatever. And I'm like, oh, like the end of this movie is amazing. And they're about to find out. And as we're watching it, I'm like looking at all the little moments that lead up to the big reveal at the end. Because I know it's coming. They don't know it's coming. And then finally it happens at the end of the movie. You know, like right there at the end. It's like, Bruce Willis is actually dead, y'all. And they're like, what? And it's like, I know. Isn't this great? And it was like so fun. We like had this moment. And I was like, yeah, you remember? the thing with the ring when he was talking to her, and was like, oh, yeah, he's actually been dead all along. It's like, so awesome, this moment. I guess I should say at this point, spoiler alert, at the end of Sixth Sense, <laughs> Bruce is dead. But I also think that that movie's like 20 years old or something, and there's like a statute of limitations on how long you have to say spoiler alert before you spoil it for someone. If you haven't seen Six Sense in 2017, that is your problem. That is not my problem for ruining that movie. It's not like I'm ruining other movies for you, like, you know, Han Solo dies, you should know that. Uh what? Uh, Bella chooses Edward. Uh, I don't know if you knew that. Um, I had to Google that and figure that out. But, um, but the, the, we, we say often, we say spoiler alert when we want to ruin, when we're going to ruin the end of whatever the thing is that maybe someone hasn't seen before. And I thought about that in, in relation to our topic today because I want to talk about when you, what happens when you die. And today's going to be like a spoiler alert or several spoiler alerts that I want to give you from the scripture about what happens when you die? Because uh, death is coming for all of us. It, it's, a, it's a certainty you will die. And that's been going on for, you know, millennia and just throughout human history, people have been dying. And uh, it's not something we think about a lot. It's not something we want to think about a lot. It's not something we talk about. It's the kind of thing we whisper when people die. We say, oh, they, they passed away. And we don't, we don't like to talk about this idea that there's this transition, that something's going where you're no longer going to be here and that something else is coming. What happens in that Moment. I want to give you some of the best stuff I can uh, out of Scripture about what happens when you die, and and to to set that up, uh, I want to give you kind of. There, there's several different worldviews because because uh, yes, people have been dying forever, and so people have developed systems and and views of thought about what what happens there. And there's several worldviews that kind of handle death death differently. If you look at Eastern meditation or Eastern uh, Eastern religions and worldviews, you've got like um, Hinduism and Buddhism, and, and both of them have uh, to some level this this karma idea that the good things you do or the bad things you do in life accumulates karma. And when you die... Uh, in in Hinduism, you reincarnate, you come back as another person, either a higher or a lower level of sort of evolved, and if you've done really well, your karma gets paid back, you come back as a king, or if you've been terrible to people, you come back as a thief or something like that. Uh, So there's this karma idea that when you die, you're going to be reborn again as something else. Buddhism is similar. There's about six different places you can go when you die. As a Buddhist, there is a heaven and a hell, and then there's the the realm of human beings. It's like Game of Thrones. There's like multiple realms all coming together. Winter is coming. You're Buddhist. Don't worry about it. It'll be Fine. Um, so that that's sort of there's a, a Buddhist view there. And, and I've heard Christians mention karma. And I'm always like, you don't get to say karma, Christian folks. That's not a thing for Christians. That's actually an Eastern thing. It's not, oh karma's gonna get you blah blah blah. That's that's not how we, we don't that's not how we roll. Um, so there's there's that in Islam. Uh, there's an idea that you basically accumulate merit, that you do well, and Allah will be pleased with you. And there's some verses in the Quran around this. I actually saw this when I was in when I was in Turkey, which is a 99% Muslim country. I was there earlier this year, and we went and went to a mosque. And you know, there's people that'll come into mosque a couple times a day, and they'll, they'll have prayers. And and I asked someone more local there. I said, How come like Not everybody goes to mosque for prayer. How come only some people go? Like, why do those people go and other people don't go? And the answer I got back was basically like, well, it just depends on like how good they've been lately. If they've been bad they go to mosque a little more often to sort of accumulate merit. And I was like, well, this is, this is almost like, reminds me of like things I've heard about Catholicism or something. Like, no, we're going to earn this. We're going to work towards these things, right? And so I was like, that's an interesting idea. There's this idea that Allah is sort of weighing your life on this cosmic scale. And if you've done enough good versus the bad, then you're in, and you're in paradise. So that's what happens when you die. You're going to go to paradise. And, and it's because you've done more good things than bad things. Uh, so there's that idea. And then there is... What is actually, I think, in the Western world, a very popular idea, and I would say it's atheist, but it's not necessarily atheist. Let's just call it like a secular humanist worldview that a lot of people hold to, whether they admit it or not, but it's very sort of scientific, and it basically says this. Look, when you die, nothing happens. All brain activity stops. They place you in the ground, and it's over. There's no more you. You were here. We enjoyed you. We have memories of you, but you are gone, period, finished. It's over. It's over. There's nothing that happens after this life. And I thought, That's, that makes logical sense to me. If you're going to just study what we can observe, the sight, smell, touch, you know, the senses, if we can just study what's observable, we can observe that when you die, it all kind of stops. That, I, that makes sense. But if you think about it, it's a bit depressing, isn't it? That view of the world. In, in fact, uh, a, a writer named Damon Linker wrote an article a couple years ago, and the article was called, Where Are the Honest Atheists? Where are the honest atheists? And he he said this, uh, and I want to put it up on the screen. He says this, If atheism is true, it is far from being good news. Learning that we're alone in the universe, that no one hears or answers our prayers, that humanity is entirely the product of random events, that we have no more intrinsic dignity than non-human and even non-animate clumps of matter, that we face certain annihilation on death, that our sufferings are ultimately pointless, that our lives and loves do not at all matter in a larger sense, that those who commit horrific evils and elude human punishment get away with their crime scot-free, all of this and much more is utterly tragic. You think? It's tragic, that view of the world. It's Hopeless for all the reasons he names and more. It is a hopeless view of our future and of what happens when you die. Now, just because it's hopeless doesn't mean it's not true. It may be the way things are. Maybe you die and you're snuffed out and it's over and that is just the end. But I choose to believe in something that's got more hope attached to it. That there's something greater going on and I get little hints and little whispers of a greater world, of something else happening besides the physical and and the things that we can observe in 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 the here and now and so i want to i want to talk to you about the christian worldview and where we see it in the scripture about what happens when we die, and, and to do this, I'm going to give you some spoiler alerts. Okay, I'm going to ruin the end for you a little bit uh, about what happens when we die, and hopefully, it's helpful for us. And, and to do that, I want to look at what the Apostle Paul said. Uh, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. The letter's called Corinthians. There's two of them. In 2 Corinthians, chapter five, he talks a little bit about um, what happens when we die, and I want you to see it. He says, "He says this." We'll put it up on the screen starting with verse one. For we know. That if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we could be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Paul gives us this idea, and and, and part of it is just a reminder of what we started with last week, which is we need heaven because we groan now on earth. Things are not as they should be, and we all have a sense of that, that this world is broken, and we get it. And so we need heaven. We want something to be out there that there's a fulfillment where where the tears are wiped away, where there's no more pain, no more sorrow. And Paul says, yeah, that's a real thing. We groan for this. We long for it. And and then he describes... um, our, our, our bodies. And so, of the spoiler alerts, let me just give you number one right here. Number one, you are a soul. You are a soul. I almost said you have a soul, but that's not accurate. You are a soul. You just happen to have a body. And it, it's true if you think about it. When you see someone in a, in a coffin at a, at a funeral, you don't say, there they are. You say, there's the body. Because you know, instinctively, that's not them anymore. That's a shell but that's not them. They, whoever they are, it's not really present there anymore. If you lose an arm or you lose a leg, you're still you, right? Because you're not your body. In fact, I read somewhere that uh, every 7 to 10 years, all the cells in your body regenerate. So literally, you're physically not the same person you were 10 years ago. Some of us, it's pretty obvious. Right? Oh, yeah, I'm like, definitely not. But that's true. You, so you're still you, even though the physical, the flesh stuff, all changes and, and, and sort of regenerates there. So you are a, a, a soul. The scripture teaches that the body is the house of the soul. Uh, and Paul likens it in these verses to a tent. Now, let's think about that analogy for a second. How many of you like tent camping? As in, you like to set up a tent in the woods, you hang out out there, you build a campfire. How many of you like that stuff? Have you guys ever been to hotels? Because they're way better. <laughs> They've, you go to the bathroom indoors, they're comfortable, you know. But people love tent camping, I get it. And the times I've been, you go out there and you, you set up a tent, and there's that moment where you're setting up the tent, and usually um, there's things about the tent, like if you've had it for a while, like it's missing pieces, there's stuff that's broken, and the zipper's stuck, and uh, like... You're missing several tent pegs, and you're trying to figure out how the how the thing the rain guard works. There's all these problems. And the tent is like broke. It's missing pieces. it mis- like sags a little bit because it's not quite right. It smells moldy because the last time you folded it up, it was a little bit wet, and now it smells moldy. Some of you are like hardcore tent campers are like, Chris, you don't fold up a wet tent. You just don't do that, you dirty person. Um, but that's the way it is. And Paul makes that analogy and says, your body's kind of like a tent. It uh, sags in the middle eventually. Uh, pieces don't work quite right anymore. You start losing things. Things are broken. You smell like mold as you get old. Like, that's okay, that part's not true. I don't even know how to make the analogy there. You do not smell like mold as you get older. You smell like roses. Um, Just wanted you to know that. Uh, So he makes this analogy, but the idea is this is temporary. No matter how good this is, it's temporary. It's not going to last forever. We're going to exchange that. And there is a future coming where we're going to have a, a, a different body uh, because, but it'll still be you because you are a soul. And I'll talk about that different body and some of that stuff next week when we get a little more into the ins and outs of what is heaven like and who's going to be there and how old will we be and those kind of questions we'll look at next week. So let's, look at, let's continue on verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Here's spoiler alert number two. When you die, you receive reward or punishment. You immediately experience reward or punishment. When you die, you will be present with God, okay? And there's going to be, something's going to go on there reward or punishment wise. Things will start for you. Your sort of eternal destiny will, will start. That's the first step is that you're with God when you die. Um, Now, it's a little confusing in the New Testament, honestly, because the Bible talks about this ultimate end for us. There's a new heaven, there's a new earth. It's described as a physical place, okay? So there's this future where there's a new heaven, new earth. There's a city. um, It's a massive city. There's a river that runs through it. There's this tree that's on either side of the river. There's all these images of what the future looks like. And there's this final judgment and Satan is cast out and all the stuff that you read in Revelation. And, and, And you're like, okay, but... Like, let's say that that is, like, as we count time, let's say that's 10,000 years from now that that happens. But if I die in, like, 20 years, where do I go between now and, like, 20 years from now and, like, 10,000 years from now? What happens? Like, if I'm dead now, how am I in this new city if it hasn't come yet? There's lots of ways to think about that. Guys like C.S. Lewis and others will will suggest that once you die and you're, you're living as a spirit, you are out of time so time wouldn't wouldn 't make the same sense to you then, and so maybe upon your death you 're to you instantaneously in that ten thousand years from now time, or whatever it is um, and that 's somewhat helpful, um, but I think potentially. The way it works is reward or punishment starts when you die. You are either with God or, or, or then separated from him. Uh, ultimately, that ends in heaven or hell. We'll talk about that more in the next two weeks. But that starts when you die. You live as spirit until you are given a resurrected body at this final judgment, resurrection, new heaven, new earth, paradise kind of idea. Similar to purgatory like you might have heard in, in Catholic Church, but not exactly um, not exactly like that, but that we are uh, separated um, from the body we live on in spirit until we get a new resurrected body that's my best understanding of of what happens from the new testament it's hard to explain though for two reasons number one it's difficult for me to explain this to you because i don't have any personal experience with dying in the afterlife i know people write books about it where they like die and they come back i'm skeptical of those um I don't have any personal experience, so if I talk about parenting, I have personal experience. If I talk about marriage, if I talk about faith, all these things, personal experience. But when I talk about this, I just haven't been there. So it's difficult to explain. And, and secondly, when you talk about this new heaven, new earth, paradise, all this stuff, um, there's a limitation to language. There's only so many words we have. I remember Chris Rice, a... Uh, um, uh, a, a musician a couple of years ago he wrote an album and the and the album title was about he- that album about heaven and the album title was like smell the color nine and it was like uh, what and it was a, it was a way of trying to use language to get to open up new categories in your brain like what if you could smell colors what if you could you know that kind of thing um, I thought that was a cool idea because there are limitations to language. When Paul, who writes 2 Corinthians here, wrote the first book to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, he describes our resurrected selves, and he uses the phrase spiritual body. You will be resurrected in the spiritual body. And that's actually weird in English and in Greek and what he wrote it in. In Greek, you're using two words. One body is soma, and the word for spirit is pneuma. So soma, pneuma, he's describing your body as spiritual body. In the ancient world, in a Platonic worldview, the Greek Plato philosophy, you've got spirit over here, you've got flesh over here. These two things are very separate. And when Paul describes our resurrected selves, he puts them together and says, we are spirit body. We, so, um, that doesn't make any sense in the first century when he wrote it, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to us now. What is spirit body? I have nothing to show you to explain what it looks like. I'm just telling you that that's, what, that's the picture Paul, it, using the limitations of the language, gives us that we will one day be spirit body. Uh, will it be physical? Yeah, Jesus was physical in his resurrection. It'll be like that. But it will be different. Will it be like the body you have now? Sure. Will it be different? Yes. Because it, it'll, it'll be more palace than tent. It'll be something that doesn't break down and doesn't corrupt and, and doesn't get old, right? Um, so it's going to be a, 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 different, a different thing. But, but there will be a temporary reward or punishment that starts when we die um, where we will be waiting for our ultimate reward or punishment. At that point, uh, spoiler alert number three uh, it is this. We will all face judgment. We all face judgment. Look at the way Paul picks this up in Second Corinthians verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, when I say judgment of God in particular, that makes us squirm. If I said judgment of people, that would make us squirm. But of God, all the more so. This makes us really uncomfortable, the idea that God is going to judge us. Because nobody ever says that in a good way, do they? God is going to judge you, and it's going to be awesome. He's going to give you season tickets to that show, the thing, to the sports team you like, out of his judgment. He's going to, you're going to see Broadway shows in heaven. It's going to be amazing because of his judgment. No, we just say judgment, bad, right? And that's the way we think. Partly because we're Americans and we look at the bright side of life. This is a great thing about this country. We're optimistic. We're upbeat. We, 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 we like nice things and nice people, and so judgment sounds really bad. Think about all cultures of the world, all times of the world, and even in your own life. Is there any place for judgment in the world? Sure. Like, if you've been abused, don't you want God to judge your abuser? If someone has come into your village and killed people, don't you want God to judge those people? If you've been attacked by a nation, don't you want God to judge that nation? Right? If you, all, all people through all time periods... The world can be a dark place, and we want there to be some sort of ultimate justice or judgment for people who have done wrong. We just don't want judgment for us. I'm fine with God judging those people over there. Just don't judge me. Because if he judges me, I'm not sure that I would stack up very well. I mean, I want to grade on the curve, and I hope God does. Am I a little better than average? Maybe. I'm nice to people, kind of. I love my wife and kids. I'm not horrible to them. I'm faithful there. I do an honest day's work, blah, blah, blah. Like I could build up my resume for why God should not judge me harshly. But the reality is I also blow it. I'm not nice all the time. I'm difficult to be with. I have anger. I have lust. I have pride. I have stuff. If you showed a movie of my life and put it up on the screen right now, here's everything Chris's ever done, there are parts that I'd be like, can we just fast forward that? I don't want anybody watching that. And I bet that's true for you too. And so if there's a judgment for God, from God, that doesn't sound like that's going to go well for us, no matter who we are, no matter how good you think you are, even your grandma, as sweet as she was, if there's a judgment, it may not go well. That's uncomfortable. The truth is, from Scripture, the only reason that I can stand before the judgment of God and have that go well is because of Jesus Christ. Because he died on the cross for my sins. His blood covered all the things I've done, and I've given my life to him, and accepted him, and I follow after him. That doesn't make me better than you or better than anyone else. It makes me better than I used to be. That's the only thing I could say. And so the blood of Christ has covered my sins, so if I stand before God in judgment... It will be, hey, you're with Jesus, you're good. You're cool by association. Jesus is good, He made you righteous. He's, you're, you're with Him, and that's okay. The, the idea in Scripture is that we are adopted. Not, we, we are not the natural born children of God, Jesus is. He's the natural born son in the family. Because of His death, and we give our lives to Him, we get to be adopted into the family. Isn't that cool? And as getting adopted in, we get all the rights and responsibilities and all the privileges of being a member of the family. That's what Scripture teaches, goes on, when we give our lives to Christ. And it's not popular to talk about judgment. And we like to think of alternatives to the judgment of God. We're uncomfortable with it. We, we, we don't want to tell people that judgment is coming. In fact, we, when we start talking about heaven and hell, that gets super uncomfortable, we start, especially the hell part. Um, and so we... we grab other ideas. There's an idea called universalism, and it's basically like God loves everyone so much that everybody goes to heaven, nobody goes to hell. There's no like dark side. There's no judgment. There's no, like God's just going to love everybody. And it's going to be good. Um, and I get why people say that, mostly because it's more comfortable to say that. I would prefer to say that to people. Hey, everybody gets a pony, man. Like, don't you want to be the person that tells people that? Like, that's awesome. Who, you want to bring great news to everybody? but I can't ignore an entire chunk of scripture that says, no, there is punishment. There, is, there, there are people that are gonna walk away from God and don't wanna be with God. They don't want him. They don't wanna be in a relationship with him and God will give them what they want. That's the reality in it, and, 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 and it's, what's, it, it's what's coming. It's what the future holds. There are those who are gonna follow after him and give their lives to him and then there are those who um, will not and, and I know it's uncomfortable but we need to base our beliefs on this and what is true from Scripture, not about how we feel about it. I want to acknowledge how we feel about it because it, it's tough, but we're going we're gonna to choose to believe what, is, what Scripture teaches rather than how I feel about it, you know, good, good or bad. So, um, So we're going to face judgment. What does that mean about how we live now? And this is spoiler alert number four. We are called to live by faith now. Listen to what uh, Paul says right there in the middle of this text in verse 7 uh, of 2 Corinthians 5. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Now, knowing that death is coming, how do we live? Well, we live by faith. That's what the Scripture teaches. You live by faith. And and what does that mean? Well, it, it means that you don't get to live with certainty. You just don't get to have it. God doesn't show up in this spirit and appear to you and speak to you by, by name, usually, sometimes, but not often. God doesn't write in the sky and tell you, you know, Jennifer, you must follow me. And you're like, oh, it's an un- sign. He knew my name and everything. How did he know? Like, it's a per- like, there's my sign. We don't get that. You don't get certainty. Part of being a finite human being means you're always going to have doubts. No, Billy Graham has doubts. Every, like, everybody will have doubts. You're going to have this moment of uncertainty. There'll be periods, times in your life where you feel close to God, times in your life when, when you won't. And, and Paul says, look, we're here now. We'd like to be with God in eternity, but we're here now, and we're going to live by faith. And you have to choose to live by faith now because you don't know how long you have. You don't know when death is coming. You might have 50 more years. You might have 50 more days. We don't know. I've seen enough people die young. To, to, to know how fragile life is. Sometimes it's tragically short. Um, we, have no, we have no guarantees. And so you choose to live by faith now, today. Because I don't know if I have next week. I was laying in bed last night. For just a moment, I had this thought of like, I'm 41. What if I'm like well over halfway done? What if I die at 55? What if I die at 70? What if I die at 80? Man, maybe, maybe most of life's behind me at this point. I don't know. I may not be here next week. I'd like to be, but I may not. And so you choose to live by faith now. You don't say, well, when the kids are growing up, I'll get involved with my faith and I'll pursue God and I'll look into that side of life. It's not like, it's not like a triathlon. It's not like I'm gonna do this thing once I've made my fortune and done my stuff and now I'm gonna do this because I'm bored or whatever, right? This is live by faith now. This is what it means, to To follow to follow Christ is it, it's a life of of faith. Um, listen to what Jesus's brother James. Now, James is Jesus's brother, and he believes that Jesus was the savior of the world. I don't know how you feel about your brother, but I have a brother, and I don't think he's the savior of the world. And it would be very difficult for anyone to convince me that he's God's own son and the savior of the world because we grew up together. And yet, that's exactly where James eventually lands. Is My brother Jesus was the God's son and the savior of the world. And listen to what James says about our lives. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James says, our lives are this. And then we're gone. That's all we've got. You may live 30 years, 50, 80. You may live to 95. But in the grand scheme of eternity, you're just a mist. You were there for a second and then you were gone. That means your kids, if you have them, they're going to remember you. They're going to be sad when you're gone. They're going to say, oh, dad, mom's gone. Have this place at the table. Thanksgiving, we remember that they used to be there. We pray. They'll think of you often. They'll remember the lessons you taught them. Your grandkids, they'll kind of remember you. They'll remember growing up with you and what you were like. As a, they, they'll mostly relate to you as, an old, as a child relates to an old person. And they'll, Okay, so they'll, they'll, oh, yeah, grandpa. But past that one generation, you're going to be the name on a genealogy tree somewhere. Your Facebook profile will probably live forever, so there's that. Um, but generally speaking, after that, it's going to be like you weren't even here like people aren't going to remember you. Well, there's a depressing thought or at least it would be a depressing thought if we believe that this is all we have. But if you believe as scripture teaches that there's more, then it doesn't matter so much what happened in the 50, 60, 80 years here because we're living for the greater thing. We're living we're playing the long game here and we know that there's hope, we know there's a future. The famous evangelist, Dwight L. Moody, in the late 1800s, he said this. He said, someday you will read in the papers, D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. It's a great reminder. He gave his life to Christ, and he says, look, it's going to sound like I'm dead, but I'm not. I'll actually be more alive then than ever before. And if you have given your life to Christ, that's going to be true of you too. So first application, if you have not given your life to Christ, if you've not been baptized into him, made a decision to follow after Jesus, um, do that today. Say, hey, I'm in. I want to follow Jesus. We have a connection card that you got when you came in. You can write baptism on there. You can check the box and say, hey, I want to talk about baptism. We can go out. And, uh, and have a conversation with you, and you can follow after him and, and be on that road for eternity with him. Now, if you have given your life to Christ, we're called to live by faith. That's what we're doing here and now. What does it look like to live by faith practically? Well, just brainstorm a couple ideas. Let's talk money. Living by faith when you have money means you spend your money in a way that honors God. You Give money away and you don't spend every dollar on yourself. You look at your finances and you say, I'm going to give a portion away. I'm going to give generously, intentionally, sacrificially to honor God, to church, to causes that, that, that um, are, are aligned with my faith. Um, I'm going to give money away and I'm going to trust, live by faith. I'm going to trust that God's going to take care of me, that I don't need to eat all that I, that I have, that I'm, that I'm going to save some for others and give, and give away. That's a trust thing. That's a faith thing. Faith says, hey, uh, I'm not going to compromise when I'm dating. I'm, I'm dating someone. Yeah, I love Jesus. This person doesn't love Jesus. We might get married. Faith says, and trust says, uh, I'm going to trust God to bring along the right person for me and, and maybe not go down this road with this other person because they don't believe, they don't, they don't have faith, and, and I don't want to you know, connect myself to a person for the long term who doesn't share this important part of my life. And I'm going to trust God that he's going to make this work out no matter what. Um, Faith And and living by faith and trust um, means when there's a downturn at work and and the the economy's bad and you get laid off, you're going to choose to choose hope. You're going to say, look, um, I'm going to choose hope here. And I'm going to follow God and that he's got this and he's going to take care of me and it's going to be okay. Living by faith faith means you take risks. Faith feels like risk. That's what it feels like emotionally. And it means you take risks, you step out and you say God's going to, God's gonna take care of me. Or you say, hey, I have this sin in my life and I, I'm gonna repent and walk away from that because it's, it's damaging to me and I think that I have to have it in my life and I don't, if I don't have it, God won't take care of me. Faith and trust looks like believing that God will take care of you as you walk away from whatever that is. And I thought about it, man. I'm like, what's the big deal with faith? Like Jesus commends it. He's all about it. Tells people to have it. It's talked about in in so much of the New Testament. Why is faith such a big deal? And I think because of this. Real relationships require faith. And what God wants to be is in a real relationship with you. A real loving relationship. All love relationships require faith. The simplest example I can give you. My wife, she loves me, but I believe that on faith. Now I have reasons to believe it. I have a history with her. I see how she's behaved towards me. But I don't know if she would leave one day or she might walk away or or do something that isn't for me or our family or whatever. But I believe it and I trust it on faith because that's what a loving relationship is. You never get certainty with things. You always are going to have a little piece of doubt. And God desires to be in a real relationship with us, which means we never are going to have complete certainty, I I think, on, on this side of eternity. So we choose to live by faith. And I don't know what the next step is for you where, where you need to test that or, or push that um, or what God's calling you. Um, but let me challenge you to live by faith today because tomorrow we could be gone and, and, and we don't know. What happens when we die? Yeah, there will be a judgment. Yeah, there's heaven and hell. There's eternity. There's with God or separated from God. There's all of those things. Can I do a lot about that time period now. No, what I can do now is choose to live with hope and choose to live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, um, living by faith is easy to talk about. It's difficult in the moment to do. And so I pray you pour your courage into us, that we will choose to live by faith in all that we do, um, and, and that we will take risks that are designed to honor you and that are aimed at you. God, I thank you for the hope of eternity, the hope of heaven. And I pray that um, we are able to really dial into it in this series and and know um, what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.